Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. Today we are joined by Grant Stoddard. Grant is a journalist who has written for Men's Health, The New York Times, New York Magazine, Vice, and Playboy, among many other publications. He has authored and co-authored several books and is considered an expert on sex or a sexpert. Grant, thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you for calling me a sexpert. Well, (laughs) Today, we want to discuss relationships and sexuality and how different types of relationships can be impacting sexual performance and in particular, erectile dysfunction. To get us started, can you tell us a bit about your career? How did you get into this space? I should probably provide a little bit of context. I was the least likely person to be a sexpert in my graduating class in school. I um, ended up moving to America and became a homeless illegal immigrant at one point. And then I got a kind of a job. It was really a paid internship because I needed money under the table. It was $5 an hour working for a sex website called nerve.com. Now there was kind of a, you know, a case of mistaken identity and I was sent out on an assignment by mistake and I had to have sex on the subway and write about it. Um, And um, I didn't tell them that I was not a writer, that I had never written before. I just asked one of my fellow interns to join me on the A-train one evening. And we did the thing. I submitted my draft, rough as it was. And then I kind of got a column out of it um, that was called, I did it for science, which was a kind of uh, monthly gonzo piece um, in which I was sent off to do something weird in the realm, not weird, sorry, um, different in, in the realm of sex and sexuality and write about my experience in the form of a high school lab report. And it was called, I did it for science. And that's how I got into the space. And I take it that things kind of rolled from there. Is that correct? They did. Um, you know, and, and so every, every installment was the editorial team coming up with something fun and funny for the sexually inexperienced English intern to go and do and write about. So, you know, my first thing was having sex on the subway. My next thing was seeing a dominatrix where I was encased in latex my third thing was I was on the set of a porn movie about a week after 9-11 and so on and so forth. So your, um, your, your columns were really experientially driven. And I know that was coming from a place where you're saying you were not experienced, but you would write about these experiences that you had. And I, I, if I understand correctly, there have also been some experiences with certain erectile dysfunction treatments that I would love to get to a little bit later in this interview. Is that correct? That's 100% correct. But I think erectile dysfunction has been a sort of thread throughout my whole career of writing about this stuff, because, 
as you just mentioned, or as I mentioned in the first place, I was very sexually inexperienced. And then I was thrust into these very high pressure sexual situations like having sex on the subway or attending an orgy or being on a porn set, um, et cetera, et cetera. So every, every, every new assignment that I was given was really sort of me being put in this very sort of intense sort of anxiety provoking scenario. And of course we, we know what anxiety does to penises generally. Yes. And that's, that's a topic that we discuss at length on this podcast. Uh huh. What I want to ask you, Grant, is that you cover a wide range of different types of relationships. It's clear that our world is open to arrangements that diverge from a traditional monogamy paradigm. Mm -hmm. Can you share what you have learned about consensual non-monogamy? Does this seem to help couples? Does it complicate their relationships further? Can you tell us a bit about this? It's always impacted by where the two people are coming into it from, you know, so there are people that are well-versed who are, who are just kind of poly people or non-monogamous people who kind of, who might pair up kind of having experience and knowing the rules and generally there's less friction that way. But more in, from what I've seen, it's, it, uh, it's more often the case that it's usually one partner who has some experience with non-monogamy and is inviting their partner to try it. That can go any number of ways. I've been turned, you know, if you, if you like to use kind of, I don't know, vampire terminology. Um, I was not a, a non-monogamous person and a partner suggested that we try it and we did and it fit great for me. But I've been on the other side of that when I've introduced it to somebody who was, who'd never really been uh, or, or played in a non-monogamous space before. And it's sometimes been successful and sometimes really not. Y you never know what you're going to get. You know, some people take to it like a duck to water and other people say almost immediately, this is definitely not for me. In my case, actually, I tried to be non-monogamous many times and it wasn't until I found a partner that I was really committed to and prepared to do anything for that I really gave it my all and, and finally successfully. So what I'm gathering from you, Grant, that I'm sure a lot of people who have engaged in non-monogamy have had this experience is that it's not only an individually driven type of thing, but it really depends on the relationship in totality, whether that relationship is set up in a way or can work toward being able to facilitate a non-monogamous type of arrangement or relationship yeah. that, that really works. And some people can be successful in some contexts while they're not as successful in others. And that has been your experience. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and, and some people go through phases when one person wants to, you know, wants to have multiple partners and the other person doesn't, and then they flip and, you know, it's always in a state of flux. And I think that's why the, the most common thing that people always say about non-monogamy and what's the most important element is excellent communication because th these aren't rules that get set. People change their mind. People change generally. People 
like to be non-monogamous and then completely change and be like, you know what, I've taken that as far as it goes and I don't want to do that anymore while their partner might be still in the throes of it. I've been in, sorry, on either side of that equation too. So people are dynamic. Life is dynamic. Relationships are dynamic. And that's Mm -hmm. a concept that we touch on. We talk about erectile dysfunction, but that applies way beyond ED. It applies way beyond the sexual realm. And I think what you're getting at is that communication about where each person is, how open they are to engaging in non-monogamy and and accepting the reality that people change over time and the comfort with non-monogamy can shift. Now, some couples who introduce non-monogamy are already in distress and they're oftentimes looking for a solution. Hmm. Have you encountered this? Does this tend to increase or decrease stress and anxiety? And is it effective when a couple who started with a monogamy paradigm and really is struggling is looking for some way to fix this and considers non-monogamy? It it usually doesn't work. Um, In in my experience, from what I've seen, um, people that had a traditionally monogamous relationship were in distress and they said, well, let's try this. I mean, I've seen it work. But but usually it's sort of um, it just exp- the, the cracks in a relationship become um, canyons at that point. Often, I'm not saying that it doesn't work. I've seen it absolutely work as well for people, at least for a certain period of time. But you know that's a, that's a very hard thing to pull off, especially if you know there's all these underlying problems, and then you're going to bring other people in the mix, and then you know it's often the case one partner has many more options than the other or one partner's circumstances make having relations with other people much easier than the other it can be done but it's tricky to say the least and i think grant you mentioned before that that communication is really key to being successful a lot of times couples who are already experiencing some form of conflict or distress may be struggling with healthy communication in the first place, which might speak to why it's oftentimes not viewed as a successful solution for a a monogamous couple who's already distressed. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially if if someone's been, even if they haven't acted on it, kind of yearning for experience with other people within the confines of a monogamous relationship. And they're like, hey, why don't we see other people? It seems like um, it can seem, I'm sure, to the other person like, the relationship is in a death spiral at that point. I can see several scenarios where a man can be looking to resolve partner-based erectile dysfunction, meaning he's really only experiencing ED with partner, but is doing okay on his own, or he's experiencing erectile dysfunction for the first time in a non-monogamous arrangement. Feelings of jealousy, worry, attraction concerns can all be present. Have you come across this while covering this topic or or experiencing this topic yourself? Yeah, I mean, um, I think sometimes when when I've been less enthused about my partner, when, when I've been in a non-monogamous relationship, it's interesting when you're with a new partner, it'll be like, oh, the it, it kind of sort of brings into sharp relief that the problem might not be with you and your level of desire, but it is partner specific. I think that sort of people who are strictly monogamous might automatically think that the problem is just their libido or, or their desire for the generally. But it, but as you say, it may be partner specific. And I've certainly 
noticed that before. I, I was married for a, a long time and I noticed that my body reacted differently when I was with a new partner. In the in the poly community, they call it NRE, new relationship energy, or, or that that's a part of what new relationship energy is. But but yeah, some of the times you, you feel renewed and reborn with a with a new partner and and it and it kind of causes you to to really think about why your main partner isn't provoking that response in you anymore yeah so what i'm <laughs> gathering is that there's an like a, an energizing effect that being with a new partner can have have you also encountered mm-hmm. the reverse though where a where a man oh, yeah. is feeling jealous about his partner going out and engaging with somebody else and that leads to distress or anxiety or worry have you seen that yeah i've, I've said you know it's, it's i'm a weird bird i've seen i've seen it sort of so some people are very i if i mean i know it's not about me but i as most of my writing has been first person and experiential it kind of is i, I always found it a huge turn on like the um so like my partner being with another person and then me knowing that and them telling me about that what was what actually increased my level of arousal but um i know for other people you know it works the other way around and they feel intimidated by this new person and and it does lead to ed problems but also this is other thing where you have your main partner and everything is is good and then you have a, a secondary partner and um you you realize that the newness of this new experience this new person has a diminishing effect on your um level of arousal you know and and it's even though they might you might find them wildly attractive it's the, just the sort of the unknown the sort of unfamiliar um you know opening night nerves we we call it <laughs> among my friends um when you're with a new partner you don't know what to expect you don't know how they're going to perceive you and it and it can have a, a an effect on your um erection i think a friend of mine used to say the first ones for the dog meaning you know like the the, the first attempt at having sex with a new partner when you're in a poly relationship a non-monogamous relationship doesn't really count because you you know there's this there's this kind of new partner and this this seems so new because you know you have this constant partner at home so everything they do seems so slightly different and strange it's it sounds like there is a lot of complexity and yeah. it's hard to sort this out before you're actually engaging in it. How any yeah. person is going to react to any specific scenario is hard to know. But this could become something which is, on the one hand, extremely arousing. And it could yeah. lead to a renewal of sexual energy, even you know helping to, to boost sexual function. And on the other yeah. hand, some of the negative feelings that may emerge, which again, are oftentimes not predictable, could enhance or even lead to some kind of sexual dysfunction you whenever you do anything like this whenever you play with non-monogamy you are introducing an element and it could go in any number of directions and you and and 
the only way you know what's going to happen really, unless you know yourself very well, is by giving it a go. But it could have ruinous effects on on your relationship. Right. It's, a, so it's, it's, it's a risk. Grant, infidelity or non-consensual non-monogamy is a challenge for relationships and can yeah. have a number of negative impacts, including impaired sexual function. How does this compare to consensual non-monogamy? You know, as it happens, I don't have much experience either personally or professionally with the former, only with the latter. You know, as we've talked about, non-monogamy really rests on a bedrock of open communication and boundary settings and um, and discussing what will be problematic and, and what may not be. Consensual non-monogamy is, is um, you're not adding that extra element of deceit um, and um, distrust, which I'm sure it, you know, must be disastrous to, to many relationships. Um, so I feel like, you know, and, and obviously non-monogamy can, is done wrong as often as it's done right. But when it is done, when it is entered into with transparency and empathy and care and compassion, I think that it's much less likely to to end in sort of disaster than than the sort of cheating that that that, that goes on. Um, in other words, if I'm if I'm understanding you correctly, while consensual non-monogamy does come with the risks that we previously had mentioned, yeah, non-consensual non-monogamy or what's referred to as infidelity carries yeah. a whole nother level of emotionality, including guilt. Uh, secrecy, deception, which could really more profoundly impact sexual function. Yeah, I think I think the one way the one way like uh, it, it, non-monogamy is kind of saying, "Hey, we're going to try this thing. We, if you're up for it, we're going to give it a go." You know where this winds up, nobody knows, but we're entering into it in a in a spirit of transparency and empathy, and you know, um, and trust. Whereas the other one is you know the polar opposite of that and you you do your thing and then you just i guess hope that you don't get found out i don't know i've no, i it's it's something it's something say, you I'm, something you haven't done and haven't covered extensively is that fair to say oh absolutely because i mean just the thought of it i'm sweating just thinking about being in that <laughs> scenario you know like it's it's um i i think i know my own body i think that would have a much more diminishing effect on my arousal or my erectile function, um, the, the sort of prospect of being found out. I think a lot of, I like a lot, a lot of people have the similar experience that while being with a new partner mm. may have a lot of arousal effects to it, having to do that in yeah. secrecy behind the back of somebody who you care about would just really diminish or erode that experience. Now, Grant, I want to come to another topic. So I want to shift a little bit here towards something that sure. I believe you have covered. Many uh -huh. people chase sexual nirvana or look to reach peak experiences. I think you've covered this pursuit and have tried various things yourself. Can you tell us about that? And in particular, if you got there and what <laughs> this means for people's sexual expectations? You know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I was often sent out on these sexual adventures um, I didn't have any say in what those adventures would be. They were picked by um, the editorial team of Nerve.com. 
you, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily stuff that I wanted to do. It's stuff that I kind of tried because it was my job. N very few of them became things that I, act I actually wanted to do in my own personal life. Um, in 2002, w one kind of um, appetizing opportunity came up, which was to go to a sex party and like group sex in my mind uh, as a teenager and all the, uh, you know, up until the age of 26, which is what I was then, you know, that had loomed large. That had been a big, a big thing. So I invited, very nervously invite, invited someone that I'd been on two dates with and said, hey, I have to go to a sex party for work. Will you come with me? She said, yes. And I was like, wow, that was easy. And um, we went to this party and, um, well, without getting into too many details, she was the belle of the ball and I was so sort of freaked out and jealous and it, 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 I, I barely had any sex at all because I kind of couldn't. I appreciate you sharing that that piece of the story because it kind of speaks to this element of sexual expectations that our minds oftentimes can create things that once we're in the situation, we may not feel nearly as comfortable, let alone not aroused, um, yeah. while something that we really believed would be a peak experience. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, did, I was like really incredibly self-conscious. I spent most of the time at the buffet table watching her have be, being the nexus of like this class, literal cluster of people. Um, and, and then, you know, when I, I said, I went over to her at one point, I said, listen, I have to leave. And she's like, I'll come too. And, and I was like, no, no, you can stay here. And then she's like, no, I'm going to come with you. You brought me to the party. I'm going to leave. And then I got booed. I got booed out of the first sex party I ever, I thought I it was going to be great. I, I, I did not envision that. I did not envision. I didn't. I didn't think I'd be carried out on people's shoulders necessarily. But I thought I'd be as, as, as um, competent as any person in there. You know, I, I knew. I, you know, I knew that I could get nervy. So I did take a Viagra before. I think it was the first one I ever took, and and even that did not did not help the situation. I was so anxious or so uncomfortable and so self conscious that um, it didn't work for me. And I didn't go back. I didn't go to another sex party for 10 years after that. And then I had to go to about 10 before I actually felt comfortable enough that I could actually live in that world. And since then, I've been able to do it quite well. But, but there was a long period of time where I thought I was, this, this was, this was, you know, the zenith of my, of, sexual experience and uh, it ended in disaster. Most of my sexual exploits ended in disaster, I'll be honest. But and I think it's important for, for our listeners to hear that because a lot of times our minds are able to convince us that sexual bliss, sexual nirvana is right around the corner if we can only actualize what we think is happening. And for people who go ahead and do that, oftentimes they discover it doesn't quite live up to what they imagine. Now, Grant, you also mentioned that at this first party, you had used a medication to help yes. assume, boost your erection. And the anxiety and the nerves were able to override that, which I think is another important thing for our listeners to hear, because those medications still require for your 
brain to be engaged and want to pursue pleasure and anxiety can really get in the way of that even if you've taken the medication oh yeah they're not magic that you know you that they just they just help you keep more blood in your penis and they stop it from from rushing back out again so um but if you um yeah if if you're um in that fight or flight mode they can be rendered completely ineffective Along these lines, Grant, you've tried and written about a number of treatments for erectile dysfunction. And what did you learn? Just a, a, a few of the things that I've tried, you know, these uh, kind of uh, gas station male enhancement pills. Attraction to another person is, is, is the best erectile enhancement that there is, you know. And I think in my career, I was you know, because I was asked to do all these sexual things a lot of the time, I I kind of would end up having sex with people, um, not because I necessarily wanted to, but because I had a sort of, you know, obligation to because of my work or because of my reporting. So um, it sounds it sounds to me like that what you have discovered is while some of these treatments may incrementally help boost things, one of the biggest decisive factors in erection, certainly in relatively healthy men, yeah. is what's happening up in the brain, what's happening in the mind, how engaged they are, if they're finding their partner attractive, level of anxiety, level of arousal. These factors seem to be really important. Is that correct? I wish I could have said it as beautifully as you without going into a little anecdote. But yes, absolutely, Mark. You could, you completely correct that's that's it's 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 all in the mind it's all about chemistry it's all about communication it's all about attraction and the 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 other things can help but they're just really the icing on the cake so grant have you tried anything for the mental side of erectile dysfunction have you tried any products or any courses or whatnot that are out there yeah, I think I t- I spoke with a therapist at, at some point about kind of anxiety that I had with new partners. And also I saw a um, hypnotherapist, again, for, for under the guise of uh, an article that I was writing, but um, about assuaging any anxiety that I had with a new partner. Because it was, you know, I got into the habit of every time that I was going to be it was like a first date and it was going, or it was, it was going to be the first time that the, we were going to have sex together. I would always have a little bit sildenafil, which is generic Viagra, just, just to sort of, um, you know, as a sort of, um, not guarantee exactly, but, but a sort of peace of mind. A little bit of a, like, a little bit, a little bit of reassurance. Exactly. Reassurance. Yeah. And so I, sp- I, I did speak with a hypnotherapist about things that I could do to, um, to sort of not be so worried. And, and, you know, and I spoke, I spoke to the therapist about the sort of pressure I put on myself to perform. This isn't so much now, but when I was younger, you know, it was a, it's how I met most of my sexual partners with, was like, I write a column about sex, you know? And then, so there was probably some assumption that I knew what I was doing or was good at it to some degree. So, so I put a lot of pressure, even though it was a great icebreaker, I put a lot of pressure on myself to 
perform and perform well. Yeah. In know? other words, you you set the tone. It was a great way yeah. to get the conversation started, but it also had at least self-imposed implications that uh, you should be a, a great sexual partner and should never encounter performance issues if you are exactly. an expert on the topic. Of course, you are human. Speaking of pressure, penis size is an area that causes a lot of anxiety and insecurity for some men. Yeah. What have you learned about this area as well as some of the ways men try to increase their penis size? Well, um, you know, I've written so many articles about um, penis size and, and generally up until very recently, the, the two things that, that, you know, all of my articles said basically the same thing, which is it's not, you're, you're probably in the normal range. You're um, most, at least female partners, because that was what the, most of the studies were on, are, are satisfied with the size of their partner's penis. And, you know, m most interventions don't work aside from diet and exercise. And if you want to increase the appearance, um, if you want to make, make it seem as though your penis looks larger, um, a little bit of trimming could help, you know? So now after that, I, I have, um, you know, looked into some other things. I did try some, uh, I, I did try a, a device that was created for men who have Peyronie's disease that actually works and actually over a period of weeks stretched my penis. So it was about half an inch longer than it, than it had been, but my partner didn't like it. So, um, so I stopped and it yeah, went and that's, back. That, that's a really important point that I was asking her to reemphasize is that a lot of times I think men are looking for a solution to a self-defined problem yeah. that their partners really, number one, probably don't care about more often than not. And two, yeah. are not as happy with the solution as the men who are trying to find it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it's funny. I did this thing and then, and then, you know, sex became painful for my partner. So it was a bit of a, it was shooting myself in the foot or in the penis or in, you know, I don't know. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, that didn't work out well. Now, there are some other interventions that do seem, you know, a bit more real, you know, there, there are a bunch, obviously, like the, there are surgeries that people do. Um, there's this thing called gel king, which is more likely to result in in harming oneself and actually, you know, damaging one's sexual function if you do it wrong or do it too much, which is a sort of manual stretching of the penis. And then there are people that put fillers or there's this a device, silicone sleeve that goes into the penis. But as I said before, like it, 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 it's a problem that exists in, in the minds of people that own penises much more than it is in the minds of, uh, of the partners of those people. Um, so yeah. Okay. Now Grant, having covered erectile dysfunction over a number of years, if I had to ask you to leave our listeners with a final message or two, what would that be? From what I've seen and what I've experienced personally, I think that um, being present and being in the moment and being relaxed are the best things you can do to improve your sexual function and have and have the erections that you usually have when you're on your own. You know, because uh, I've been in situations where. I've, I've been with partners. I've noticed, oh, wow, my, 
I have better erections when I'm on my own as opposed to when I'm with this person. And what's different? Well, she's not there. And it's a low stakes situation and I'm relaxed and I'm not trying to impress anyone. And it's just me. So kind of like bringing that mindset somehow to being with a partner, I think that's what it would be. Communication is a big part of that. And, um, and also, you know, knowing your body and knowing what works for you and being clear with your partner about that. Because I've had partners who expect, who have expected me to respond in a certain way to immediately be ready for sex with them. When I know my body and I know that I need a certain amount of foreplay and a certain amount of sexual things that I like to do to get to the level of arousal that I want to be at, you know? So I think it, it's, it's knowing your body and being kind of assertive about like what you need. And, and you would hope obviously that they would be assertive about what they need too. If I was going to put this into a couple bullet points, tell me if I'm, if I'm capturing this, but person has to know what works for them. They've got to be able to communicate that and work to create a relaxed atmosphere in order to just have the kind of robust directions that they want. Yes. I wish you were around all the time, Mark, just to, you know, summarize my like blabberings into, into these concise bullet points. Cause that that's exactly right. Yes. Great. You're welcome to listen to the podcast as many times <laughs> as you want. Uh, <laughs> we, cool. Yes. Really appreciate you joining us today and our listeners are going to benefit from hearing all that you have learned and all that you have covered and about your experiences, which I really appreciate you just being so open and sharing with us. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.